Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in trying to make the world a better place through business, Raj Sosodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you today. Good to see you. And today, we have an incredible guest. Um, we have with us today, David Cooper Ryder. Now, um, I'll give you the, the bio, but then we'll go into what he's really famous for. He's the Fairmont Minerals Professor of Social Entrepreneurship at the Weatherhood School of Management at Case Western University. He's a past president of the National Academy of Management's OD division, lectured at just about every school that matters in any way, shape, or form, from Harvard, Stanford, University of Chicago, to colleges in Belgium, MIT, Michigan, Cambridge, and others. He currently serves as the director of the Center for Business as an agent of world benefit. Now, there's a title that you really want to have, business as an agent of world benefit. And the center's core proposition is that sustainable value creation is the business opportunity for the 21st century. And indeed, that every social and global issue of our day is an opportunity to serve to ignore, ignite industry-leading innovation, eco-entrepreneurship, and new sources of value. And most importantly, he is the founding father, co-father of the whole field of appreciative inquiry. David, welcome. So glad to have you today. Great to be here with you, Timothy and, and, and Raj. I just always love um, when we get together. So one of the things that, you know, as a Canadian, I got to get straight right from the beginning. I thought somewhere in your bio that you spent some time in my hometown of Montreal. Is uh -huh. that right? Yeah, no, I love Montreal. Um, and I was thinking about um, accepting the offer to be on the faculty at McGill University um, with great people, Henry Mintzberg and Nancy Adler and so on. Um, and then I ended up um, taking the position at Case Western Reserve University. But um, yeah, I was almost there, that close. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Wonderful. Well, now that I got the hometown boy thing out of the way, um, we can get into the, the the really important stuff, which is, you know, appreciative inquiry. Um, it has revolutionized how people think about both coaching as well as about organizational change. Um, where did the idea come from, David? How did you maybe, you know, give us a brief overview of it and then tell us, you know, where it came from? What was the origin for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think um, very often in life, we a question gets posed and we just kind of gravitate in the direction of that question. And um, when I was in college, I did have an opportunity to, um, I got a Lilly Foundation grant to study in Japan, University of Tokyo. And for me, it was a major, major, you know, um, experience. I had never been on a plane before. I came from a fairly poor family. And um, so it was, you know, just cross-culturally an amazing experience, obviously. Um, and then um, the day that I remember most was the day we were in Hiroshima. Um, and it was like uh, an atomic bomb of awareness went off inside of my heart. And, um, and you know, um, it wasn't, yeah, it was like, it was like a recognition of the miracle of life on this planet. And um, and for me, a question was born that day, and that was, what are we, I was in social, social psychology, and what are we going to discover in the human sciences that's as powerful in a positive human relationship sense as the atomic bomb is in the negative human relationship sense? And I think once posed, questions continue to evolve and, and, and guide you, and um, and so um, when I ended up at Case Western Reserve for my PhD program, I had a great mentor, 
brought me into, you know, and I was in the field of organization development and um, he made the opportunity for me to do any study I wanted to do at the best medical center in the world, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, number one heart center, just a, an amazing, um, you know, an amazing, amazing, just scientific place and so on. And and I was asked because there was a revolution there. Um, the physicians um, revolted. They two, three years earlier, they all came together. It was a group group practice, but they were cut out of the decision making and the bureaucracy. And they said, "We want to be part of every position. We want to have a you know an administrator in finance, but we want to have a doctor in finance. We want to." have a doctor in marketing and all the different disciplines. And, and so they created this, an amazing um, system. Um, and it was very complex. They believed in consensus and lots and lots of, you know, um, committees and, 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 and I was asked to do a diagnosis because it was getting like molasses. It was, you know, conversations and dialogue and, and, and you know, 500 person meetings and stuff. And, and it was so special. I just thought this is, you know, and that that was the nature of my field. It was, you know, medical model field, and to lift up what's wrong with that system. And I just, I, I said to my mentor, this is so special. And social inventions are so rare, counter bureaucratic forms and so on. And I said, all I want to do is study everything that gives life to this system. When it's most alive, most in, when people are most engaged and effective and innovative and so on, and that's all I did then. And the chairman of the board invited me to present my findings, and all I did was I, I set aside every dysfunction and just studied everything that gave life to this living human system. And um, and it was remarkable <laughs> at the board meeting. I had a 50-page report, and um, the first question was, "Where's all our problems <laughs> as an organization? Where's all our problems?" And I said, "No, I've got in the footnote here that we did an appreciative inquiry, and um, tried to describe that. And soon they said they just the dialogue became amazing, and they said, "Can we do this with all 10,000 people now?" And so it launched a 10-year effort where we started to realize that human systems grow in the direction of what we most deeply, authentically ask questions about. And appreciative inquiry is all about the search for the true, the good, the better, the possible, and everything that gives life to living human and ecological systems. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's really, uh, that's brilliant. And the, so the word appreciative, as opposed to, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about brutal honesty and facing the hard facts and so forth. Uh, what happens when we take that uh, route, when we focus on the problems and try to eliminate those? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, it is a big shift, um, Raj. And there's nothing about appreciative inquiry that doesn't look at the patterns and the problematic and so on. But what, in a, in a conceptual sense about the theory of change, um, what it wants to do is wrap any change agenda in the universe of strengths. I think, you know, I think in the field, our metaphors matter. And, um, you know, the industrial age grew up with the machine metaphor that the world is like a machine and our industrial systems are like machines and they break down. and and the parts, you know, and, and, you know, almost everywhere we go, like I would give a, a case study on General Motors or whatever to a group of leaders and ask them to analyze this case. And, and I wouldn't say how to do the analysis, but just do an analysis of this case and come back after lunch with a spokesperson. And 98% of the time, they come back with the same order in their report out. They have a flip chart and they say, here's the biggest problem we see at General Motors. Oh, I didn't ask for that, but that's, and the person says, you know, the leadership here has lost touch with the field and with the marketplace and with their people. And, and then they said, flip chart over. Then we decided to go deeper and find what are the root causes of this problem. And we listed three as a group. And, um, 
And then they go the next step. They said, you know, there wasn't enough investment in research and development and the bureaucracy has too many layers. And, and now if we were the general manager or the consulting group, what would we do? Um, brainstormed a bit. And here's the intervention. Here's the way we would solve this problem. So what I noticed over and over again, you can try that and that sequence will come out 90%, 90, 98% of the time. And it's like we are locked into this deficit-based theory of change. And with appreciative inquiry, we started saying, wait a second, organizations, human systems are not you know, um, problems to be solved, you know, they are a mystery of human interaction and a miracle. And they're, they're filled with infinite imagination, infinite capacities. Um, so if we shifted from the world as a problem to be solved, instead of and shift to a universe of strengths, life-giving strengths, then the questions just shift and, and, and naturally begin to um, change. And instead of just studying, you know, um, alienation and conflict, and, and you can study anything in any human organization, you could study alienation, conflict in every single human system. We could study also hope, inspiration, and joy in every single organization. And so um, appreciative inquiry began to develop a lot of methods. And, you know, one real pragmatic doorway into appreciative inquiry, one of the pillars is around this uh, kind of strength-based focus. And um, when he was 93 years old, it was wonderful. Um, Peter Drucker called and said, I'd love to sit down. Can, and I've heard all about appreciative inquiry, the work you're doing with the Navy and with the United Nations and so on. And um, so we sat down and he, his curiosity velocity was amazing. I couldn't get a question in the whole time. Um, and then finally, after eight hours, I said, but Peter, you've written more on leadership. You know, he's the father of management thought. You've written more on leadership and management than anybody. Can you put it in a nutshell? And he said, yes, David, the task of leadership is to create this alignment of strengths in ways that make a system's weaknesses irrelevant. And I wrote it down. The, the task of leadership is to create this alignment of strengths in ways that make the system's weaknesses irrelevant. And I think, and I'll get back to your question, Raj, but I think what what he's um, what what's suggested there is could it be that leading change is all about strengths? And you know, in the past in leadership and management, we've talked about the idea that strengths perform like an orchestra and so on. But what about the idea that strengths do a lot more than perform? they transform, you know, if that's the case, then where are the tools for the rapid elevation of systemic and economic, human, cultural strengths? Where are the tools for creating combination chemistry effects of strengths? Um, and that's one way to think about appreciative inquiry. It's a whole set of tools for the elevation, for the combination effects of strengths. And, and it's in that combination effects part of it that, um, you know, in human systems, as we develop our visions and of the new and the true and the good and the better and the possible, and it's grounded in the past and present positive core of a system, um, then what, what we're trying to do is create almost like a theater of strengths, a surround sound of strengths, and, um, and then create the future. And, um, and, and, and that's when difficult human system problems go away. They, they melt. They're not solved. They melt. They become irrelevant. They become eclipsed. Um, and so that's part of the theory of change there. I love it. And I'm, I'm curious, as you think of David, uh, you know, you mentioned the work that's been very much highlighted, the work you did with the Navy, but I'm wondering if there's other you know, if you really look at it and you sort of say, okay, which are some of the examples I'm most proud of where, yeah. where we brought this in and we made a transformation in an organization and I'm yeah. really proud of that. What would you, what would be on your top list there? Well, um, yeah. And I'll just precede that right with a little bit. I do think the leadership question almost everywhere I work, whether it's in education, healthcare, um, in business, UN, um, their question has shifted in recent years. Um, and it's, you know, obviously it's changed this, changed that, changed, changed, changed. But 
the real question today in the senior leader's mind is not just simply the question of change, but it's change at the scale of the whole. How do we move this whole 67,000 person telecommunications company together? How do we hold, you know, move a whole industrial aged and toxic, um, you know, um, Cleveland together to green build a green city on a blue lake? Um, so just, you know, in that sense, um, just amazing, you know, examples. Um, and this is the second part of it. So the one pillar is the strength-based approach and the positive psychology of human strengths. But the second is the power of whole systems, wholeness. Um, so we do this work now, um, like three days of strategic planning and visioning um, with 500 to 1,000 people in the room. You know, we'll have the int all the internal stakeholders top to bottom. We'll have all the external stakeholders um, from the community, from the supply chain, from partners and customers in the room. So um, let me just share a couple of quick examples of this um, as you. So one, um, I remember when Bob Stiller called. So Bob was the um, entrepreneur who bought this little company in Vermont called Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. Um, he, he called and he said, David, I've you know, heard about appreciative inquiry. I want to create culture that's alive in the human sense and fully engaged. And, um, and so, um, you know, we started with a, about a 700 person appreciative inquiry summit, we call it, um, three days of planning. Um, at that time, there were some whispers of bankruptcy um, when he bought that small company. Um, it was about 157 million in sales at that time. And they chose a topic to come together around preparing for a, an era of phenomenal growth and phenomenal world impact. And, um, and out of that, they almost single-handedly created the U.S. Coffee Fair Trade Organization. Um, they donated um, millions to that over the years, um, became a real model in sustainability. A couple years after that first one, they were named the most ethical company in the world, two years running, that had never happened. And 10 years later, their market cap was $24 billion. Um, and, it, you know, so, and, and every year, Bob would do that and bring every level from the truck drivers who drive the product to, you know, the R&D folks to the IT and technology folks. He'd bring um, coffee growers from Costa Rica. He'd bring the whole system into the room, all the B2B customers, all the direct customers. And every year at the end, Bob... Bob was so interesting, he would just listen intently as we went through the 4D cycle of discovering all the positive core of strengths and assets, um, then dreaming what this company looks like in 10 years and phenomenal growth, phenomenal world impact, and then designing, you know, like 30 or 20 initiatives to move in that direction. But Bob just listened and listened and listened and listened. And at the end, he would feed back everything he heard um, so crisply. And he'd be standing in the middle of this room with, you know, 700 or more people. And he'd get a standing ovation every year um, so that, you know, he was an incredible leader. Um, another, um, I mean, just a lot of, you can imagine the complexities of dealing with the supply chains and the factories um, in Apple and all the work around the world and the impact that could have on millions of lives. Um, so that one was really exciting. Um, Admiral Clark, the head of the Navy, when he called, that was a shock. He was the head, the CNO, Chief Naval Officer. And he said, do you really think we could do planning with E5 sailors sitting next to three-star admirals? And, you know, and sure enough, you know, this three and a half day summit then gave birth to a center for positive change in the Navy that continues this work. And um, another one was when Kofi Annan called. And this is, um, mm. you know, when he was Secretary General of the United Nations, this is an important one for me. And the bridge to business as an agent of world benefit. His, 
you know, at, at, at the time I got the call, we were just huge debates about whether business is aligned with societal interests or not. And mm. um, protests all over the world. I think that year at the World Economic Forum, there were protesters around the whole thing. And, and Kofi Annan was there to address the um, business leaders. And everybody's thinking, what's the Secretary General of the UN going to say to the business leaders? Is he just going to join in this kind of chorus of critique right now? And he didn't. And I talked to him later about his speech. Um, but basically, he said, he said, uh, you know, there's no way we're going to eradicate extreme poverty in this world, which we're capable of within our generation, um, without dignified work and without it, mm. terrific investment and so on. There's no way we're going to create this transition to a bright green, 100% um, renewable energy world with incredible, without incredible entrepreneurship. Um, there's no way we're going to create mm. cultures of peace and justice like the, the Middle East, for example. There's no way we're going to create cult without, again, equality and dignified work and meaning. And so he reached out his hands to the business leaders that day and he said, let us choose to unite the strengths of markets with the power of universal ideals and let us choose to reconcile mm the forces of private entrepreneurship with the great needs of the billions that live on less than $2 a day. Let us choose. Well, about six CEOs came up to him, um, the head of Tata and Coca-Cola and uh, Microsoft and IBM, and they said, we'd like to carry on this discussion with you um, to develop our vision for the, the 21st century business. And, um, and so then he hosted a meeting, the largest of its kind at the, at, and someone told them, don't shape it like a traditional world summit at the UN where that where it's just talking heads and pre-negotiated agreements. You know, they, they said, you should really collaboratively create with the, and so um, I was called at, at the university to, and someone told them to use, we should use appreciative inquiry. And it was exciting. I brought teams of our masters and MBA students and and uh, masters in organization development to be help with the facilitation, um, and it just went terrific. I mean, um, and it, you know, he talked for a couple, you know, twenty minutes, and then we got people into appreciative interviews, searching for all the assets and strengths and the true, the good, the better, the possible. So that was exciting. Um, and there were protests outside at that meeting too, because you know, and the protesters, um, and my son, I had him as part of the facilitation team. And I said, you know, I think we should send a couple people out to the protest groups. Um, and, you know, the rest of you will stay in the um, summit that we have here at the UN. And so I asked my son, he said, I want to go out with the protesters. <laughs> but they brought the protest groups in to hear the deliberations. And at the end, they got up and said, the authenticity that I feel in this room and the way these senior leaders are thinking 50 years out, you know, um, way beyond kind of what most mid-management folks would be doing. So anyway, it was exciting. And, um, and then the, um, three years later, um, so the UN Global Compact then grew and grew and grew today. It's the largest sustainability network of companies in the world. It has over 16,000 corporations, part of it. But the next meeting um, with 400% growth a year, the next three years, because of the collective alignment and engagement and ownership of this, um, the next meeting was in Switzerland. And I guess, you know, I have to say at that meeting, I had feelings I had never had before um, in my life, you know. I'm sitting, I, I, I sat at one of the tables um, with, a, you know, as we were doing the appreciative search and lifting up the innovations and, um, you know, Jeffrey Sachs was part of that group. So Jeffrey is the economist at Columbia University. He wrote the classic text that we can be the first generation in all of human history to eradicate extreme grinding poverty, the kind we can hardly identify with. But he was pounding the table like John F. Kennedy saying, wake up, you know, what an amazing time to be alive and leadership and, and what we will see within the next two decades. And, 
and um, and what a precious time to be alive. And he was pounding the table. And then Jane Nelson, she heads up the Center for Corporate Citizenship at at Harvard, and 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 she was sharing her stories about the kind of a dazzling, amazing technology breakthroughs that are going to happen in renewable energy. I think she shared the story of the research at Vienna University where they spray on solar cells onto windows and 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 cars and everything has a window and every every resource like that can become a power source. And then um, the head of Tata stood up and um, and he said, you know, this, it is time for all of us, Ratab Tata, it is time for all of us to stand up, to step up and to scale up. Um, so, um, so we've had, we then in partnership with the UN Global Compact um, created um, a kind of a, a, a theory practice um, forum called the Global Forum for Business as an Agent of World Benefit. And it's a question, you know, what does it look like? Business is a force for peace in high conflict zones. Business is a force for um, this massive transition we're in. So, so that one of the things that I'm proud about with the appreciative inquiry is that it tends to go on over years and years, the momentum through that positive lens. Um, and, you know, we're studying why that is and, and how it is, but, um, you know, like, um, the UN Global Compact and us just did our fifth global forum um, last October. So, yeah, those mm. are examples that, oh, and, and I'll tell you my favorite one. Um, and it, it, part of these, what's so exciting for me is that they kind of knock me off center, a lot of these. Like, I was really scared and nervous. I was out of my league, I felt. Um, the appreciative inquiry, yes, but you know, just that 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 work at that scale, um, and so a couple of years later, Dalai Lama was in Jerusalem, and he felt the tensions in the world in a way he had never felt them. He was um, it was dangerous. He was walking down the streets of Jerusalem. He was with a um, a supporter from San Francisco, an investment banker, Richard Blum, and. Dalai Lama then, you know, feeling the tensions, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, all fighting each other in the name of their religions and gods. And, and he said, oh, my gosh, you know, if, 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 if our world's religious leaders could just talk to one another, the world would be a better place. He said, you know, um, we don't talk. We don't know what's in each other's hearts. You know, I might be on the same platform as the Pope, but we don't know what's in each other's hearts. And so Richard said, well, what would you like to do? And Dalai Lama said, I'd like to create a new kind of dialogue across the religions. And again, here I am in a business school. So it was shocking to get that kind of invitation. Um, Dalai Lama was gonna be in Washington in three months and they wanted to, could we do that with, and make a pilot of this new kind of interfaith dialogue using appreciative inquiry. and." Um, so I scrambled and scrambled and scrambled, but um, you know maybe later I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But the essence of it is today, um, uh, an, a new organization emerged from that called the United Religions Initiative. Um, you know, it's the, the one metaphor was like a UN among the world's religious leaders, but it's much more grassroots, um, and it has. Um, it has over 9,000 centers in the world today, um, over 1,000 actually, centers around the world. And we did five appreciative inquiry summits at Stanford University um, with people all over the world to write the charter. And, um, and that organization, um, um, there's, it, it's been nominated for a Nobel Prize as, a, as an organization. Organizations rarely win the Nobel Prize. Amnesty International did at one point. International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War did at one point. But, um, but anyway, I look back on that work and um, I felt feelings I'd never felt before as we came together uh, across the different faiths. Yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, every time I listen to you, David, or read anything you've written, I'm just moved, you know, by your heart and intellect and how it shows up uh, in your eloquence your phrases that you uh, you create that are so memorable i mean you're 
you're a poet, I think, with ideas and words and kind of a painter. I mean, I just, I'm searching for the right metaphor here, but I just wanted to appreciate that about you. Your creation is extraordinary always. As I said, I've read many things you've written. You know, come, both of us come from the world of academia, which is not known for writing that is particularly moving or engaging, right? Uh, but I've, I've found that, uh, you know, very inspiring yeah, every time I've well, and Raj, it's been so amazing to work with you. And, you know, as I, you know, understood your work and the firms of endearment and the healing organization and so on, a couple of the other high points were when we worked together doing these appreciative inquiry summits with companies that were on the path to conscious capitalism. Um, you know, I can remember um, the summit at Clark um, Industries but it was so much fun to team up with Raj. You know, we they they called it Project Greater Purpose and Lyle Clark, the CEO, it was a mosquito control con company, you know, very chemically toxic and so on. It, he just had a moment where he said, you know, I wanna build a business that's completely sustainable and green and high purpose and um, we give back to society. Um, and he had a phrase, I want to do, you know, do all the good that you can possibly do. So it was wonderful. And, um, and, you know, every in these appreciative inquiry summits over three days where you have every level and you have customers in the room and you have, um, um, you have a couple speakers, but not many. It's really roll up your sleeve planning and coming out of it with real collective action. But Raj was the keynote speaker at that one. And it just, um, it was just lovely to see the takeoff and the energy of this company. Um, and I think Raj, you you made some predictions about this company's growth and um, and they've all happened, uh, you know, incredible growth, but then they also received the presidential award um, during the Obama administration for green chemistry. They have no toxicity anymore, no chemicals at all in their um, their stewardship of lakes and dealing with mosquitoes. It's they they were a small company, but shot to the top of their industry. Yeah, no, I think I remember we were in Amsterdam as well with another company. And what I love about your work is, uh, as you said, you 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 managed to get the positives without suffering the negatives, right? In that sense, we're going to talk to very Johnson with polarity thinking, and that is about seeing these things as complementary and and harnessing the strengths and staying away from the uh, the weaknesses. You know, we have we have talked about uh, do, bringing this work in a couple of contexts. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but we explored doing it in Costa Rica, where the pres vice president of the country said, "Yeah, we introduce conscious capitalism there." That wow, maybe we could become a conscious country. You know. Yeah, a lot of the pieces were in place, so I think that kind of work. And now in Mexico, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm working towards that, maybe at a city level or a state level, or maybe country level eventually. Yeah, yeah, the community, the uh, universities, other uh, civil society members, and the government come together with a shared vision. You know, yeah. and you've done that, of course, in multiple ways. But uh, I love what you're doing in Cleveland, uh, the vision of a green city by a blue lake, which I first of all love that phrasing mm -hmm. again. And if you could. Tell us a little bit about that journey. I know that's been going on for a few years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how that's progressing and uh, what changes are coming about. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, it was awesome. So Mayor Jackson um, attended one of the United Nations Global Compact meetings, and he could see that, you know, with the right innovation, um, going green and building green energy systems and so on could really grow um, the jobs in the city. Um, and so he said, do you think we could do an appreciative inquiry summit just like we did there in, in at the UN? I said, of course. And um, so, you know, there's three kind of big stages in a summit, you know, the pre-summit steering and design meeting, then the summit, and then the post-summit architecture to sustain and to actually build momentum over time. And um, and in that, you know, the mayor opened up our design meeting and just, you know, shared a few 
words. And the team then came up with this phrase because the Appreciative Inquiry Summit is always task-focused. It's not, let's come together just to feel good about ourselves or to have you know more camaraderie. It's about a task. What's, what are we coming together to accomplish? And they came up with a, a, a brilliant phrase and, and it had a lot of meaning to them. Um, coming together to create an economic engine to build a green city on a blue lake. Every word in that had meaning for business leaders, uh, the empowerment part for neighborhood activists and so on. Um, we had um, 700 people in our first summit in the um, convention center. And it was so exciting. And this is um, something we're learning too, is it is that with these kind of big meetings, people have an image, okay, we're coming together for a community dialogue or a community conversation, but people are tired of, they're fatigued with just a good conversation. They're say, they say, you know, we came together and we just got started and we just had a great conversation, but what are we, you know, what's going to come of it? So this was real collaborative planning and um, and I, I, you know, I love the fact how we move from dialogue um, to design and we take a page from the design thinking field. We had a partnership for 10 years with IDEO, one of the top design firms in the world. And they were interesting, interested in appreciative inquiry with its large group capabilities, because most of their designing is in a group of, you know, 10, 12, 15 people. They, you know, so... Um, so anyway, in our design phase, people, after developing the vision of what are all the different parts of our common ground vision, that positive emotional attractor that we agree upon, and you start hearing, you know, okay, here's an opportunity area to design. Here's an opportunity area. We came up with, um, like, in that dream phase, they came up with 24 major opportunity areas. Um, one of them, for example, um, was to take all the vacant land. Cleveland had a, you know, an exodus of a lot of people um, because of the toxicity and so on. Um, and so lots of vacant land. So one team is working on creating urban farms and they get the legislation passed for a dollar. Anybody can lease those vacant lands and create an urban farm. Um, or another one, and the, the point I want to make here is the concreteness. Um, this group, this group um, was began to envision freshwater offshore wind energy. Um, that doesn't exist, you know, um, and Lake Erie, one of the great lakes, would, it was right there, our lakefront in Cleveland. And so they, um, that group um, came up and, and built like a prototype for the whole assembly to see. It was a model like 20 feet high and 25 feet wide, they built it and show. And that's what we do in these design phases is actually move from words on a piece of paper to actually building. So you can see the early concept as it's emerging and, and that builds a pathway that builds hope that builds willpower. And um, so they did. And, um, and then as most summits, people sign on to stay with this. And in this case, all volunteer, um, but across business lines, across, you know, research universities, um, uh, we had public school children, we had, you know, all the faith community, the arts, um, every part of the system. And so this group went out and raised $5 million um, about three months after the, that summit. Um, and then um, last year, they raised $56 million to actually produce the first. So right now it's just passing through legislation. And the reason at the state level, and the reason I mention that is because people feel like, oh my gosh, that's impossible with 700 people in the room to come together and get to the point of not only vision, but concrete action and the intrinsic commitment to move it forward. So the mayor, after that first one, he came up to me, he said, I've never seen Cleveland come alive like this. And spontaneously, without even talking to his chief of staff, he went up and said, we're going to, I dedicate, we're going to host this every year for the next 10 years, because we, this is a big project that needs lots of traction. Anyway, we're into the 12th year now. 
and again, you know, that, that, that kind of um, surprises people, you know, like we came out of the first summit with 24 really strong working groups, again, voluntary and cross-sectoral. How many of those do you think existed a year later? Just your knowledge of change leadership and change processes. How many do you think came back to the next summit? Cynical side says half. <laughs> half. Yeah. Okay. So we went from 24 to like 32. Uh -huh. um, so it grew. And so that's another um, characteristic that I'm proud about with the appreciative inquiry is that the intrinsic development uh, and the commitment that gets developed um, tends to, you know, lead to projects that go on for decades. Yep. Well, if I could, I want to think about this in the context of something that I think is is very important, much talked about in business today, which is the whole concept of purpose. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of people out there now talking about getting a purpose and having a purpose. Yeah. And I think our experience has been, well, it's great to have a purpose. It's better to make it matter. <laughs> and uh, you know, bring it to life, have it some have some heft behind it. Yeah. And yet one of the big barriers that that we've seen is hmm. that when you when you want to have a purpose, you're about communicating it and telling people what it is. And but when you want to make it matter, one of the first steps is connecting it to your business strategy, connecting it to that vision of the future and how will this business be different? How does it fit with our strategy? Because in the end, you know, they're, you know, uh, having a purpose isn't an excuse for not having a good strategy. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. got to have both yeah. and you got to yeah. make it work together. Yeah. And appreciative inquiry seems like, uh, you know, a perfect vessel yeah. for trying to take that purpose and make it matter. Yeah. And I'm curious, what's your view on that or experience yeah. with something like that? Yeah. yeah. Yep, no, the appreciative inquiry is very powerful in helping like this project greater purpose um, that I talked about. And I love, you know, I, I learned a lot um, from D. Hawk. So D was the founder, um, at, former founder and CEO of Visa International. And when he took it over, um, the credit card industry was in a shambles. And and he kind of made breakthroughs in creating these, you know, now we do them all the time, these alliance structures. But he brought together 50,000 competing banks. And, um, and what he realized was that, you know, there's no way you could manage a system like that from on top or, you know, the systems in India are going to be so much different than the systems in Colombia and so on. And so what's going to hold it together? And his um, idea of, of the most liberated organization is he calls it the chaotic organization where you're on the edge of chaos and order, not command and control, but on the edge of chaos and order. And, um, and what, you know, from complexity theory, so he called it chaotic organizations, but the whole thing that um, allows it to have so much life is that it's it's all internal, um, internally led, you know. So, um, so you know, uh, and I and and it's and it's the the DNA that holds it together is the powerful body of belief, you know. Like in a constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, all human beings are created equal. It's at that level of discussion that we try and take our appreciative inquiry summits. He had a wonderful definition of a good purpose. So a good purpose statement is one, um, and purpose is one where people at the end of their lives say, my life had meaning and significance because I was part of this system. So I worked with him on several occasions. Um, we worked together on this United Religions Initiative to build this worldwide structure and self-organizing system that now you know has over a thousand centers. Um, but I can remember the depth that he insisted on in terms of this work you know we um, we would do the appreciative inquiry summits we'd get the contours of the purpose and principles and then there would be a team like all follow up there'd be teams to follow up but i can remember we came together as a team a charter writing team to get to the deepest level articulation of purpose and principles we got together every 
45 days for three days over two years. Mm. The, the, the depth that that kind, to get to the purity of principles and th that are going to live for a hundred years, the purity of principles and the purpose, um, I couldn't believe how he insisted we put that much time into it. Every 45 days, that group came together for three days to deepen and polish and get to the point like a lapidated stone, you know, um, that, that it just sparkled. So yeah, in that case, the purpose was um, um, to end religious violence and create cultures of peace and justice in the service of all of life. So, you know, but once it, and then, oh, the other part of it and in, in our summits, and we do this, not, you know, with Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, um, then, you know, as you get to the depth of principles and the constitution-like sense, like, you know, most corporate value statements are platitudes. You know, they, 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 you know, they don't get at the real issues of organizing. Like they often don't get at the real issues of our beliefs about power and control, you know? So what are our beliefs about power and control? And, you know, should decisions be made by um, the most local level possible and, and dominated by no single voice, you know, get those principles out. Well, anyway, they got pretty radical after working on them over a year. And then the last one was any person or group or department or entity in this system can do anything it wants at any scale, at any level, at any time, as long as it advances our purpose and principles. So that made people squirm. <laughs> but that puts the onus on then to say, we're really going to, we, we, we really believe these and we're going to live these and people can do anything they want if it advances our purpose and principles. Well, I love that because um, it reminds me of reading uh, Dehawk's book years ago now, I mean, 20 years ago. And, you know, nowadays the, the big word is teal. We're trying to create teal organizations or right. agile organizations. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's the same idea that, that but, you know, evolved maybe to another level. But, yeah. but I'm curious as you, you know, I call it freedom within a framework. And you sort of just articulated it, you know, say within these principles, within these values, yeah. We give you the freedom yeah. to execute, but we do have a framework. It's not yeah. just yeah. It's not yeah. chaos. It is controlled chaos. Yeah, within. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's pattern and coherence, you know, yeah. as opposed yeah. to as opposed to command and control. The kind yeah. of control and. And I'm curious, you know, when you start to work with an organization, I mean, it's one thing to sort of say, okay, we're going to do this appreciative inquiry about our vision for the future. Related but slightly different is how we're going to operate and run as a business, which, which yeah. starts to get into this idea of a curatic organization or a teal yeah. or agile yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that as a as an OD junkie when you started and <laughs> you sort of come full circle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, I, again, what seems to happen is um, people look back to that summit as if I, if we ask the leaders later, what was the high point moment when you came most live and you saw your company operating the way you'd like to see it? They point back to that summit very often. So um, Raj mentioned the company he and I worked with in Netherlands called Schubert Phyllis. Um, and, uh, you know, you, when I hear him speak, he says that was the high point moment in my career. I think people get a glimpse. It's like a practice field of, of this kind of self-organizing and inspired kind of organizing. Um, and very often that pattern becomes a pattern that the organization grows into. Um, one company I work with, and I love this one because I, if, to pay for my college um, and graduate school, I used to be a truck driver. I drove trucks with North America van lines. I traveled across the country and delivered people's furniture. I was really strong at the end of each summer. Um, and I was a teamster. Uh, and the labor management issues were horrible. And, you know, um, anyway, uh, 
a few years later, after developing the appreciative inquiry, I had a chance to work with a big trucking company, Roadway Express, and um, lots and lots of grievances, very harsh. They were really tumbling as an organization. And so it was radical for them to bring 500 dock workers, truck drivers, um, mechanics, and you know every level, um, every senior position, every function, plus the customers in the room. Um, anyway, um, at the first one, um, and this is very often true, like I, I wonder why executives wouldn't do planning like this at least once every year you know, to build those bonds and trust and and supercharge the real um, agendas and strategies and so on, um, because it's really easy to do it. Uh, that's a whole nother research topic. But um, because the best in people comes out when they experience the wholeness of their system. It's like astronauts who see the planet from a distance the first time. It's a shift in consciousness. Um, and anyway, this particular organization, um, the first one wasn't easy, and maybe this is why some CEOs don't want to do it. Um, the unions instructed all the, you know, all the stewards and all the union members to turn their back to the CEO at the start of this meeting. They didn't believe it was going to be a real co-creation. And um, anyway, it ended up going fantastic. And that group went on to do went on to do 65 500-person appreciative inquiry summits over the next year and a half and turned the stock price from 14 to 41 and, and just created this culture, this human, fully human culture um, where they would call on the appreciative inquiry summit and hard-nosed things to take $75 million of cost out of the business in three days to um, redesign, you know, they had 300 facilities with where you know there's the throughput and how could they double the throughput and akron used it to redesign and and it meant millions on the bottom line for them so it, it just became a way of life and i think you know i think that's what you were kind of hinting at you know how does this actually begin to translate into ongoing ways to work with that freedom in a framework well i love the one thing that, that i'll take right and I'll let raj jump in here which is you know, the mind shift of the senior executives who participate in that because they uh -huh. see it, you know, like you say, seeing is believing and the opportunity yeah. for them to experience that is huge right. because then it's not like an impossible task. They've experienced it. They know that it's possible. Yeah. Now the question is, how do we amplify it? And, and, the, and the most common response with um, or leaders that do it the first time and they're really, really nervous and, um, well, the most common response is, what was all the fuss about? We have such good people. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take much to surface the goodness of human beings. Well, I think, David, you embody this mantra we use that everybody matters and everybody needs to win. Yeah. And bringing everybody into the room, giving them the respect that they deserve, and then seeing the extraordinary wisdom and care that resides in all of them. I mean, I've seen it in every kind of environment uh, out there. You know. Uh, We'd love to learn a little more. I mean, you mentioned being a truck driver. That was fascinating. <laughs> your, your upbringing, you said you came from a relatively poor family. Uh, what what made you into the person you became, yeah. uh, number one? And secondly, you know, you and I are both academics, and I don't have a lot of role models in the world of academia, but you're certainly one of them. And, um, and I think we were both featured in the Sanders book, Intellectual Shamans. And I wanted to know what that phrase means to you when you first learned it, that she had labeled us that way. And, and how do you feel that we in academia can have you know, a meaningful life and, and actually make a contribution uh, beyond just publishing articles in, in obscure journals, right? So what's your vision for that? And then after that, I'd also like to explore a little bit of your spiritual journey. And we can get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I... I I, I was blessed with an amazing mentor um, for my PhD work, Srivastava, um, and he was iconoclastic. Um, you know, he break all intellectual boundaries and so on. And um, and so you know, he wasn't caught in the ivory tower kind of reductionist science of just you know reducing this study to one little hypothesis. Um, and 
And I just, I learned about the power of ideas, you know, that like Alfred North Whitehead's little book called The Adventure of Ideas. And, and he talks about how, you know, um, you know, like the idea of slavery at one point that was seen as a fact, you know, Plato and others, they didn't like it, but they saw that it was a fact of societal existence and so on. Um, and, and Whitehead then traces how that idea, um, you know, began to erode and how, how the revolution took place. And I think he had a sentence like these, these big shifts happen, like, um, you call it like in the seven, like it's like the, the waves hitting across the cliff of some habit, some mountain of habit. And after the seventh wave, the nations echo round and the world has changed. And so I, I grew up with that feeling that, um, that the, that the power of ideas was just so important. And I experienced that in my first article on appreciative inquiry all of a sudden, you know, and, um, and so I think that's part of it. Um, I was just fortunate, but yeah, you asked about Sandra's notion of the shaman. Um, and I didn't know what she meant by shamanist, you know, um, you know, what was the title of it that she gave it? Intellectual Shamans was the name of the book. Of 28 professors in there. Yeah, but I, um, I did study a little bit then what that term meant. And, um, and there's one book, um, um, it's, it's called The Spell of the Sensuous, and it's by David Abrams, an anthropologist. And, and it is a study of shamans. And what um, he studied um, was how the shaman has the capability to shed the cultural blinders of their system, the cultural habits and blinders of their system, and to open up the senses so much, you know, um, he calls it synesthesia, where all the senses are operating, including what D.H. Lawrence calls the sixth sense, and that's the sense of wonder. And the shaman is able to slip out of the perceptual barriers and habits of a culture and um, and pay attention and to, you know, the, an eagle's flying or whatever, and then come back um, with just the right message for that community at that time in their life. And um, so I loved that book. Um, you, you should read it. I read it and it's very deep book on phenomenology and so on, but it just, it, it, it spoke to me saying, you know, how much we have allowed our senses to shrivel all the senses and all the stuff around us. Um, you know, I, I think there's what something like a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Do, do we feel that? Do we, uh, you know, the appreciable world, the world that's capable of being appreciated is so much larger than our normal appreciative eye, you know, um, the, and so I, um, I, as I worked on appreciative inquiry, I felt like it wasn't me. Um, I felt like it was a task that was um, tapping me on the shoulder. And um, I can remember um, when there was a time where I was ready to just write, write, write. So I went to my mom and my dad's cabin for um, about eight weeks. And I didn't talk to another human being for eight weeks as I was writing this. Um, and I'd have three sessions a day. And the topic started talking and screaming at me, you know, like, David, you're too chicken. You're not drawing a line in the sand. You're watering it down. You're, I just wrote for two months. And um, <laughs> my emotions got so raw that I remember when I was doing my five mile run. I saw a squirrel dead on the, and I just started crying. Um, but, but that, that, that's so to me, that was like, people say, Dave, what was one of the high point moments of your career? It's an odd answer, but it was during my PhD dissertation work, you know, when all the senses are coming alive and you're open and, you know, you're willing to listen to um, even the tiniest voice. Yeah. Last question from me, David, is really, you know, we got a chance to spend four days on a silent retreat together. Yeah. 
yeah. in New York uh, in 2018, I think. And uh, that was a very meaningful experience for me. And I know that you've had uh, a, sp a spiritual dimension to you with Peter Senge and Joseph Jaworski and others. So you have experienced certain things. And I just wondered if you would share a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, partly going back to that, experience in Hiroshima um, as a young college kid. It just woke me up to the miracle of life on this planet and all that's in our hands. And, and, um, and I do, I, I, you know, I do find so much depth and um, courage and, you know, comfort and, and um, creativity with, you know, I, I, I love the the meditation that we were doing at this place and um and i went to india and spent you know weeks and weeks and weeks in mount abu in rajasthan it's a wonderful kind of raja yoga uh, meditation community and um and i and i have to say working on that united religions initiative um you know one of the things that they did in the summits was say no that we're not gonna do any proselytizing with anybody or anything like that. But in the mornings, they would have deep um, spiritual meditation kinds of sessions from all the different traditions. And, um, and it was just wonderful, you know, to sit in a room with Dalai Lama and meditate through that tradition. And then with the sheikhs and with the, you know, all the different groups and Muslim and so on. And, um, and I just realized that at the core, you know, just to get to that spiritual space of silence and yoga in the sense of union and, you know, union, linking to, um, connecting with that kind of, so that's been really important in my life. And I, I'll share the moment that was the most profound on that. Um, in the series of meetings we had all over the world with Dalai Lama and the religious leaders, after the pilot went well, we went to the Carter Center the next session because of Jimmy Carter's interest in conflict resolution. And then the next one, we went into Jerusalem and, and it was tough. You know, the Imam was saying at one point, I could get shot the minute I walk out of this room. And, um, so, you know, and, and there were some, you know, good theological debates and so on, where he turned to the Jewish um, rabbis and uh, um, Christian theologians and says, you know, um, yours is a theology of love. Ours is not a theology of love. Ours is a theology of justice. You talk about a theology of love, but ours is a theology of justice. And what, you know, wait, you, you just bulldoze these houses and so on so um so anyway but they came together so powerfully and um and this was important i think and i hadn't thought about it that way but one of the members in the group said you know we have bonded and we've come together um i wrote a paper called the surprise of friendship what they wanted to do was center to center union with the deepest and best they didn't need to solve the world's and this and that but anyway they one said you know in the eyes of our youth at least at the most senior levels of the religions religions is often seen as a force for division and conflict and hurt and bitterness and we don't you know they said you know we've had big moments like black and white when Mandela and de Klerk, black and white, hold their hands in the soccer stadium and it's on the magazines and everybody, the world echoes round saying, we can, we can do better with our human relationships. Look at this. They said, um, we don't have a single image like that of like the Dalai Lama and the Pope hugging. And so they said, one person said, I have a proposal. I have a proposal that we leave the this retreat setting that we're in and go in public together and we went and they had to have bomb dogs and all this stuff but we went to the jewish wall and prayed and meditated together we went to the dome of the rock and prayed and meditated to with each other and then um in christ's tomb we ended the kind of tour and dalai lama led a prayer and a meditation and i just had tears flowing because 
I felt like I, I saw such respect horizontally happening. And, um, and for me, you know, very often we think if we're connected, connected vertically to the spiritual source or God or whatever we will call it, then that will filter out horizontally to each other. What I felt was just the opposite. I felt the love and respect across the horizontal and that made it easier for me to connect and go deeper with um, my faith and so on. So, yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. That story. <laughs> David, your, your, your talk today has been so positive and inspiring. It's just been great. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you for your spirit, Timothy. And I loved our talk earlier and, the work you were doing to help Ukraine and so on. Um, thank you for that story too. And Raj, it's always wonderful to, you know, work with you. I see you as a, uh, you know, as a, a, not just a thought partner, but you know, a brother. Thank you. It means a lot to us. Thank yeah. you. Well, well, thank you, David, and thank you to our listeners. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to subscribe on whatever channel you're listening to it on. Or if you feel so inspired, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com, our website, and there's a place there where you can leave feedback for Raj and I about what moved you or what would be even better if um, after what you've heard today. So thank you so much, David, and thank you so much for our producers at Tech Sounds, Max and Mars. And Raj, you want to put in a special word for a special place? Yeah, so this, uh, this podcast is now uh, sponsored and hosted by the uh, Conscious Enterprise Center at Technological de Monterey, where I am now a faculty member. So uh, we have great ambitions and, uh, and plans to, uh, to make a difference in the world of business, uh, partnering with uh, people like David and others uh, to bring all of this wisdom to bear. 